Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 92nd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Noah Isaacs, co-founder at Bowery Valuation. Noah is the definition of the words determination and hustle. This mentality stems back to his teenage years, where he had a dream of working for a major league baseball team. With this goal in mind, he actually cold-called every baseball team and dialed through to each extension, hoping to get in touch with the team's GM to land a job. He eventually did connect with the GM from the San Francisco Giants, but obviously he was too young and inexperienced at the time. However, he didn't let this discourage him. When he was 20 years old, Noah and his long-term childhood friend and current co-founder, John Meadows, set out to build the experience required for a back office position in baseball. They took the initiative to create a website where they would report their findings from scouting minor league players up and down the West Coast. This ended up creating the very stroke of luck Noah needed, which landed him and his dream job as an intern. He shares more of the details in the podcast, but it is definitely one of those stories that sets the stage and tone for their future success as entrepreneurs. Bowery, the company that they both co-founded, is bringing the real estate appraisal industry to the modern era with an end-to-end software solution for commercial real estate appraisals. The company's raised a total of $17 million in funding, including a $12 million Series A, which was announced this past January. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like more of the details on Noah and John's friendship and the story on how Noah became an intern for the Toronto Blue Jays, how they discovered an industry that was ripe for disruption, the interesting story of how Bowery Valuation was founded, plus its current state and scale, advice for founders raising capital, lessons learned from building and scaling the business, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you could sign up for customized job alerts from our job board? It's a great way to make sure that career-defining opportunity doesn't pass you by. Go to venturefizz.com backslash email to sign up. After you receive your first edition, you'll be able to tailor it specific for the job categories you care about. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Noah. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. No, I'm excited to talk to you because I actually have a background in the company that you're building. I uh, started my career at KPMG as a tax consultant, where it's actually working for the state and local tax division doing appraisals and uh, helping corporations reduce their property taxes. So I was actually spending a lot of time in the assessor's offices in Boston and helping uh, Liberty Mutual and Gillette fight their taxes with municipalities. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you about what you're building. But uh, let's rewind the clock a little bit. So, so where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? And what did your parents do for work? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Berkeley, California. Uh, my mom was a computer programmer. Uh, she's now retired. And my dad was a psychologist and a professor. He ended up getting into real estate. So I think the, growing up with the real estate background and, and the technology background, I think to some extent, you know, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and um, what was I like as a kid? I think I was mischievous and super curious and always wanted to know how things worked and break things and take things apart and try, to try and fix it. So this is, you know, what I'm doing now is super in line with you know, who I was when I was a youngin. Now, your, your co-founder, John Meadows, so you actually grew up together, right? Yeah, we grew up in Berkeley, California. We met at summer camp. Uh, we were fast friends almost immediately. 
I remember the first day, the first day I met him, I think he remembers meeting me before and, and I forgot. I think he still holds that against me a little bit. Uh, but we're just talking about baseball and as San Francisco Giants fans, we're huge Barry Bonds fans and talking about who the best hitters were of all time. And, uh, you know, of course, Ted Williams came up as well. Uh, but John was like the granularity that he could talk about baseball was something that I've never seen. It was encyclopedic. And so that was really exciting for me. And he could talk about Ted Williams and talk about, you know, strike zone and the happy zone and name each individual, you know, batting average for each ball. And so that for me, you know, I never really met anyone quite as, as intellectually curious with regard to baseball as that before. So. Well, then you went to, really to, to study um, you know, and you actually spent some time working for the Toronto Blue Jays. So obviously, you know, you were talking about your experience with John and uh, being so passionate about baseball and all the statistics. So like, what, what was the drive there and kind of like, how did you end up, you know, you know, working as an intern for Toronto Blue Jays? Yeah. So I, in high school, it became very clear that I was not going to be a major league baseball player. Um, I played for a year at McGill. In, in which I hit for the cycle, which was uh, strike out, ground out, pop out, and fly out. That was that was the extent of my collegiate career. Uh, and uh, it, I'm, I'm undersized for, for a baseball player, but when I read Moneyball in high school, I was like, this is perfect. I get to pursue baseball. I get to pursue math and statistics and things that really excited me. So as a 16-year-old, I was uh, cold calling every baseball GM. And uh, I'd get the operator and they'd say, you know, enter in, you know, let's please dial the four-digit extension. I'd start one zero zero zero, and I'd just cross it off and go through. And uh, eventually I got to Brian Fabian. And I was 16 years old. I was like, this is, you know, love what you're doing, kid, but you're 16 years old. Come back later. And uh, a couple years later, bought Baseball America, which is this big uh, baseball directory and has every scout's number and GM's number. And ended up cold calling all of these scouts and talked to Sam Ganey over at the A's. And he said, I just, I made a website where I scouted baseball players. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Let me do the same thing. So in 2009, John and I created a website called the California League Review. We went up and down California. I uh, went to about 50 games, writing scouting reports and networking. But And how old were you still yeah. at this age? At the, this stage? We were 20, I think. 20 years old. I was in yeah. college. And uh, we'd call ahead and we're like, hey, we're calling from the California League Review. And because these are minor league stadiums, I don't know. Like, they, they don't know what's real and what's not. And they're like, oh, the review, of course. Yeah, here's some press tickets. So we got free tickets to all these games. Yeah, exactly. And meanwhile, we're like, we're wearing Under Armour shirts and like pretending to be scouts and we have a stopwatch and all of this stuff. But it was it was amazing to learn firsthand from these scouts what they're looking for. And it was, it was an awesome networking experience. And, and did your and website start getting the, some traction with that? Like, did you like, not, not really, but it was validation. It was something that it was, it was a portfolio of work. Mm-hmm. So when it came time for actually interviewing with baseball clubs, I, I had a body of work to show them. Cause the challenge is every time you call a baseball team, like, you know, we'd love to take you, but you don't have any previous baseball experience. Right. Like, well, great. How, how do I break in? Right. So you sort of have to, to fake it. And uh, towards the end of the summer, I was sitting next to a scout with the Giants. And he's like, oh, you went to Miguel. Oh, you got to Miguel. That's awesome. 
this kid that I worked with in Montreal went to me, his name's Alex. So you should hit him up. Here's his cell phone number. He hands over Alex's number. I look up who this guy is. He's the <laughs> assistant GM with the Toronto Blue Jays. It's Alex Anthopoulos. <laughs> right? So now I have his cell phone number. A month later, J.P. Richardi gets fired. He gets promoted to GM. And I'm just sitting, I'm sitting there with this lottery ticket. And I work up the courage to leave him a message. I practice. I record it to make sure that's the right length. I leave it for him. Week goes by, nothing. Two weeks go by. Finally, he calls me back, which is pretty awesome to call some kid back. And he says, you know what? We'd love for you to come down to Toronto and interview. Went through this long three-interview process. Finally got this dream job. Um, but Alex didn't go to McGill. Alex went to McMaster's. And, <laughs> so he you know, didn't even go to that same school. <laughs> no, he didn't even go to McGill. The, the scout, That's awesome. he just made a mistake. And it's like, oh, it's a Canadian school. It sounds similar. Like, I get it. But it was extraordinarily fortunate that, that things played out the way they did. And that's sort of, unfortunately, that's sort of the only way to get a job and, in baseball is to either played or, you know, some stroke of luck. Yeah. And, and I'm a big believer in, you know, there is luck and then there's creating your own luck and just hearing, you know, cold calling at 16, building your own website at 20, getting to know in that inner circle of connections of people in the baseball industry, you, you know, carved a path to actually get that cell phone number that led you to the to the role yeah it was it was pretty surreal and it was fun like i love you don't get to hustle like that at every stage and, and it, you know that kind of hustle is really fun i'm sure you and john must have some great memories of going up and down the west coast of of you know analyzing minor league baseball players yeah definitely i mean i put ten thousand miles on on my car that summer and uh and it's not going to like it's going to like stockton and modesto and bakersfield and Fred. it's like not these glamorous. Are places that you wouldn't normally go yeah not glamorous yeah <laughs> now how is the job in itself as far as you know working you know part of the operations for a baseball team it was amazing and extremely challenging i mean i I was there as an intern but the only person in the back office with a math background so i was ordering pizza but I was also doing contract analysis and worked really hard uh, on the draft. That's a, that year we drafted big names to be like Noah Syndergaard was one of our big picks that year. Um, and so, and Aaron Sanchez and seeing them progress through the system was pretty awesome. But I was working a hundred hours a week, which, which is just really hard to sustain my boss was working more hours than I was. And Alex who was the GM. He, he said, you know, if I was working for the twins, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a general manager. Yeah. Right. I busted my ass and the right people got fired ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And I just got lucky. And, you know, at that age to hear that it's not really a meritocracy that you just have to get, you know, someone ahead of you has to get fired. It's so tight knit. There's only 30 GM jobs. That was really hard for me to stomach. And I don't want my boss to get fired. I don't want his boss to get fired. Like that's not something that excites me. And so to have to put in those number of hours and not feel like you really have agency, but all you can do is try and work hard on the next person was disheartening. And that's when I, you know, I reached out to John who was in New York. He was working at this boutique appraisal firm 
I, I didn't know what commercial appraisals was, and he didn't know what commercial appraisals was a month before he started the job. Uh, I reached out to him and said, can I get a job? And then obviously you landed a job there. And so what, what was the job initially? So I go down to interview for at this appraisal firm in New York. And first thing this is, we're not hiring. I'm like, okay, this is okay, great. great. Just, yeah. <laughs> You're like on Tommy, uh, like, okay, thanks for your time. <laughs> yeah. So I interview, uh, at least meeting, you know, the owner of the company I thought would be valuable. Uh, a month later, I get a call from, from the owner and he says, Hey, uh, you're starting January 9th. There's no, no negotiation, no, con- no, nothing. It's like, all right, I guess, I guess I'm signed. I, uh, so I start January 9th, uh, and you know, first day, pretty overwhelmed. I talked to the admin and said, Hey, like, do you need anything from me for direct deposit? And she said, Oh, we, we don't do direct deposit. This is, this is in 2000 and this is January 2012. Right. Pretty uh, modern era of direct deposit. <laughs> yeah. And the admin is cutting a check for every employee and there's like 30 people there. Mm. So that's, that's what's like, this is interesting. <laughs> this is there is something at play here. And from the get go, it was so abundantly clear how antiquated everything was within the industry. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the you know lack of direct deposit was so emblematic of all of the other archaic systems with within the appraisal industry. The the idea that I'd have to go to the same ten to fifteen websites over and over again and manually enter in property information was crazy to me. The fact that I'm using an Excel that's linked to a Word document and the Excel is just the last Excel you did, and the Word document is the last word you did, which means everything's pre-populated with the wrong information. It was just clear that there's nothing out there and that this is the wrong way to write commercial real estate appraisals. It was also really lucrative. So when you combine sort of the, the lack of technology with the actual potential value, it seems ripe for, for someone to create some sort of intervention. So you and John are working in this industry, you know, doing appraisals and did finally a light bulb go off saying, wow, we need to do something about this. Like this is such a ripe opportunity to build a company around. We always wanted to start a company. And so we had crazy ideas. Like we, at one point we wanted to do uh, healthy ice cream sandwiches, but you know, you take two kind bars and, you know, do frozen yogurt instead of ice cream and, you know, sell it to the Facebooks and Googles who are buying, you know, tens of thousands of these things. Uh, we had like a 25 liter doer of liquid nitrogen in our living room at the time. And we would test things, like all sorts of crazy ideas. <laughs> this is the one that made sense. This is the one that's like, okay, this is a, this is a no brainer. Um, and so I worked for uh, about three and a half years. John worked a little longer. Um, and we saved up enough money to quit and start building our dream software full time. So that happened in, uh, in about June, 2015, we started, we quit and we started just building software. And so, you, you know, you, you obviously very smart, John's very smart. He went to Penn, uh, but you're not computer science, uh, you know, majors. So, so. You're going to go build, you know, we just quit your jobs. You're going to go start a company. So what do you do first? <laughs> so fortunately, John had the network of 
bright friends. And so one of his friends on his hall freshman year was this software engineer named Vikas. We reach out to Vikas, we tell him what we want to do, and he starts doing some work. He's already got a job, and he says, listen, guys, what, what you want to do is doable. Uh, I think it's probably, you know, four to six months to build everything you want to build, but I can't do it because of my visa. So I want to introduce you to my friend Caesar, who's an engineer from Princeton. So Caesar, who is now our CTO, was the first person we met. We just got lucky. He was amazing. Like instantaneously, you're like, wow, this is someone that we want to work with. He also has exceptional pedigree. And when he was talking to us and we told him how much money we were, we were making and we showed him how we were doing it, he's like, I didn't know opportunities like this exist. Like, how could you possibly know about commercial real estate appraisal unless you have like a family member who does it or somehow like for you, I guess, you know, you fall into it. That yeah, was my neighbor. <laughs> my neighbor was doing it. So, and he, he's like, we need help. I was, my job initially was taking those, how, how many pages of real estate appraisal, like 500. I mean, they're, they're insane. I, they can be vast. Ours range from hundred to 200 pages. Yeah. So my so job substantial. was to take each appraisal. It was a, just paper doc and make like three copies of each appraisal because there wasn't like a, you know, this is even more archaic. It wasn't like a, you know, digital version of this. If you lost the appraiser appraisal, you were like screwed. So I had to make three. We, different still, we still submit hard copies to clients and some of them, you know, it, and part of it's, you know, in case of like disaster relief or whatever, so that they have something on file, but some people actually still print these things out and read it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's very, very unique. Um, but yeah, so one of the hardest things for a startup, especially if two non-technical co-founders is finding that technical leader. So, uh, you know, so that, that was very fortunate. We, I mean, we have people ask us all the time, like, how do you do it? How do you just get lucky over and over again and live long enough to get lucky again? Like that's, that's sort of been the story and surround yourself with good people. Um, but Caesar, you know, who's our CTO is, that's just luck. There's, there's nothing else to explain it. And we are so fortunate to have them. So, so how did you start to, you know, actually roll out early versions of the software and get early adopter customers actually, you know, start using it too? That was tough for us. So to write an appraisal, you need a designation. So you, at bottom, you need to be state certified. John and I are not state certified. So we, we can't find the reports. You really need what's called an MAI, which is your JD or MD of appraisals to start a company. And so John and I couldn't do that either. So it was really, really challenging for us. So John, Caesar, and I met every day at, in our living room or in a cafe somewhere and just designed software. And we, we figured that the only way to make this work is we'd have to raise venture capital and then with that venture capital, bring on an MAI from a top company so we can actually start signing these reports and selling these reports to the banks. So that, and that's when you actually hired like a, like a chief appraiser? Yeah, that was after our first round of financing. But before we did that, we got into Metaprop, which is the Y Combinator of real estate located in New York. And, uh, we got really lucky. We met with Zach Aarons. I don't know if you know Zach Aarons, but he's one of the top real estate prop tech angel investors in the country. And first meeting, we showed him what we were working on. And I'm not even sure he looked at the software, but 
he knew because he's in real estate that the appraisal space was so broken and no one was doing it that he pushed to get us into Matterprop. And when we first interviewed with Matterprop, they said, okay, number one, we don't take anyone who doesn't have a technical co-founder. And at the time, Caesar was just on contract. I was like, oh, okay. And we don't take anyone who's pre-revenue. And at the time, we weren't just pre-revenue, we were pre-users. We had a software that wasn't even fully baked. So we brought Caesar on full-time, best decision we ever made. And Zach Aarons fought to get us into Metaprop, even though we didn't have revenue, we didn't have any sort of traction. And so throughout Metaprop, we built and built and built. And then at the end of it, it culminated in a demo day in New York and San Francisco. And we sort of used that as a launching pad to raise our seed round of finance. And I imagine, you know, once you go through that accelerator and then you get the connections to the investment community, that if the people are specializing in the real estate world, that that same no-brainer moment light bulb must have been going off of, yeah, the appraisal industry needs some, some technology help. That's what we thought. That's what we thought was going to happen. That's not exactly what happened. Okay. We got out there and we're running out of money. We owe, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to like engineers in Minsk and credit card bills crazy. We got down to $10,000 in our checking account before we actually closed our round. Like it was pretty dire. We had 60 meetings in two months with VCs. Wow. 60 meetings. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a grind. We, we have no users. We had no revenue. John and I were first time founders. I mean, we're co-CEOs. People hate that. Like everything was sort of stacked against us. And finally we were able to convince uh, a group of real estate VCs and a journalist that, you know, this was worthy of investment and, and that was game changer for us. But when Cameron Creek led our seed round and when Cameron Creek was doing diligence, they called every appraisal firm in New York, wanted to see, you know, they're saying, you know, what's the exciting technology? What are you using out there? And, uh, they talked to one firm and I said, we just started using this new software. Like, oh, great. What is it? Like, it's amazing. Oh, okay. What's it called? It's called Microsoft Excel. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> and, yeah. This is in 2017. Someone was still using, or someone was using something before Microsoft Excel. Like they just started. Like Lotus 1, 2, 3 or something. <laughs> well, yeah. If you haven't used Excel, it, it, it is game changing. We were meeting with, uh, with an appraiser uh, out in Texas two weeks ago, and he had just left his company, and we're saying, you know, why did we, why did you leave? He's like, I was just frustrated. Like, I was just tired of using WordPerfect. Like, WordPerfect? What? What is wor yeah. <laughs> what? He had to leave his company because, because they're still using WordPerfect and Lotus. And it's like, this is, this is prevalent. This is not. Like they're still not using outliers. floppy disk drives if they're using WordPerfect. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. Like, it's like, can you PDF WordPerfect? I don't like. <laughs> are you printing it out and scanning it back in? I don't know how or why, but it is. It's a it's a space that's antiquated, unlike any that I've encountered. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Obviously, you know, you raised capital and you started getting some great traction. So wh like, where's the state of your business now? And, and, you know, sometimes it's good to have 
a technology revolution, but sometimes it's kind of can be early to market where maybe the, you know, the end customers aren't ready for it. But so just talk more about where, where the current state of the business is. Yeah. So we, we've raised $19 million to date. Um, and we have 38 people uh, in 2018. We tripled our headcount and tripled our revenue, which is really big. Uh, but it's a it's a constant challenge. Technology is scary for a lot of people. Change is scary, especially for our clients who are banks. These are cautious institutions, as they should be. Um, and being able to communicate that what we're doing is actually safer is our challenge. And getting them open to see that you know not only can we deliver something faster, which is great, but we can deliver something at higher quality, which is more important than anything else. And so getting in front of these banking institutions is challenging. The sales cycle is challenging. No one's really excited about adding an appraiser to a vendor list. It's hard to get them really excited about it, even though there's a ton of value to to be added. Um, but that's, that's our constant challenge. And so we've grown quite a bit, but we're looking to more than double revenue again this year. Uh, Right now, we are located, uh, our, we're headquartered in New York, but we cover uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Um, and by the end of the year, we're going to be looking to expand into either Chicago or Los Angeles. So we're meeting with appraisers in both Chicago and LA now just to figure out you know, who the right fit is going to be. And like, what's, what's kind of the end goal that you have in mind? Like, is it, you know, to, to be the de facto standard in, you know, that you're the 800 pound gorilla in the appraisal industry? Yeah. Uh, among other things, I mean, the focus right now is on commercial appraisal. I think that the reason that we've been able to execute to the extent that we have to date is because of focus. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is when you're building something new, it's nothing but green field. You could do anything. It's all open-ended. Uh, and our challenge is being deliberate and focused. So right now it's to be the number one commercial appraisal firm in the world. Uh, but with that, there's a lot of uh, adjacent industries that can also use technology. And a lot of it, because the appraisal is so vast and it's the most uh, granular uh, underwriting of a real estate asset, there's a lot of subsets within what we're doing that are also valuable. Got it. And I guess, you know, a good analogy of, of what you guys are doing and kind of the transformation that needs to take is, uh, you know, you think about uh, someone doing their own, uh, you know, end of the year income taxes. Uh, there was a transformational shift where you went from a form to TurboTax, right? So I've read that, you know, that's, you that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's like TurboTax for the appraisal industry where it's just making it really simple and technology enabled. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. The idea is that we can use technology to supercharge the best appraisers so that they can be faster, more efficient, but most importantly, more accurate. The, the challenge with appraising is being able to balance, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of parameters at the same time. It's everything from architecture to zoning to taxes. And, you know, within New York, especially, it's, it's all very nuanced. But Computers can balance those parameters. They can present all of the pertinent information on the page where you need to make the decision. And so that's, that's something that we can do in a way and at a scale that you could never do in Microsoft Word or Excel. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned that you and John are you know, co-CEOs. 
So, so how do you decide, you know, who's handling what? How do you divvy up the responsibilities? John is more on the qualitative side and I'm more on the quantitative side. So I oversee more of sort of the, the finance stuff. Sean does more of the recruiting. Um, there is some overlap, uh, but it is, when we were in Metaprop, we would go around the table and everyone would say, you know, what their biggest issues were. And all of the CEOs would say, there's only one of me. Like I'm getting stretched so thin. Like there's, there's no way for me to do all the things I need to do. We have that issue, but we have it half as bad as the rest of the people. There's two of us. So right now we're, you know, we're talking, but John is in a meeting with a client. And it allows sort of a flexibility that you can't have with two, two people who can make executive decisions. Now, you also talked about, you know, the process of raising capital initially, those 60 meetings, and then I'm sure, you know, the process of raising a total of 19 million now. So what, what advice would you give to founders that are out there trying to raise capital? Um, you know, what were some of the lessons learned that, you know, you would pass to others? I think that, one, having a warm intro is everything. So having Metaprop reach out on our behalf, that validation is huge. Just listen to a podcast with Mark Andreessen. He, he said that they've never invested in a company without a warm intro. So that warm intro is a requisite. The other thing is it's really hard. Like you're going to get a lot of no's, but if you, if you go out and you say, all right, I want to get a hundred no's, you're probably going to raise money. Right. I think people get discouraged because, you know, you get one, no, you get two no's, but you have to persevere. And I think if you can do it long enough, you, you will be successful. But that's the biggest thing. I mean, 60 meetings is a lot, but, you have to be prepared to, you know, I think get a hundred no's and then, and then keep going. Well, I think if, um, if I was a venture capitalist and you came in and told me a story of what you were doing when you were 16 years old to get a job into baseball operations, I think I would have started, you know, invest in any idea you have. Cause that's like, you have this track record of perseverance to lead you in a direction where you want to get to and you get there. I appreciate it. And, and I wish that I had brought that up when we were looking to raise our seat around. I think it would have been a lot easier. Part of your pitch deck. Yeah. <laughs> so, so obviously building a company is not easy. Uh, what are some of the, like the, the lessons learned that's wow, if we could have done that differently that first time, man, would we? Yeah, it's such, it's such a tough question because it, it's hard to examine the counterfactual. Like had we not made that mistake, would we be here today? Mm-hmm. Um, that, so not to say that we haven't made a ton of mistakes, but it's, it's just hard to pinpoint what would have happened, right? Like we went out to an investor and maybe we blew the meeting and they didn't want to invest, but they did introduce us to another investor. And so that's how we got FICA, right? And FICA has been absolutely amazing for us as investors. Who knows if that would have happened, right? And we caught FICA towards the end of diligence. And so we already had a term sheet and FICA didn't feel like they could move fast enough. So John and I flew out to LA to actually meet this venture capital group. And who knows if they would have invested had we not shown the initiative to fly out there, right? So it's, it's, it's hard to, to parse through all the mistakes and how that sort of yielded good outcomes or bad outcomes. Um, the number one thing that I would say is that success is compounding right? 
these little wins early on become big wins over time. And uh, that's something that the CEO of Flexport says, and that's something I couldn't agree with more. Like, you get Metaprop, right? And it feels small, and at the time it felt expensive. You know, you have to give up equity to get in there. But giving up equity in a company that goes to zero, who cares, right? right. Mm-hmm. But because we had Metaprop, we're able to, now we're tagged as insiders, right? We're within this, you know, special venture ecosystem, which allowed us to raise a seed round. Because we got funded in our seed round, it was way easier to raise the next round, way easier to raise the next round. And so I think that initially I took for granted how valuable these small wins can be, even though they felt costly at the time. I can't tell you how important it's been to get these little wins early. Yeah, that's so, such a good point. I love that. Success is compounding. That's great. I, I love that statement. So obviously you're very, very busy building a, a company. So you probably, uh, you know, spend lots of your waking hours doing that, but the off chance that you do have time outside of work, what, what do you like to do? It's rare at this point. Um, but, uh, I love to make music. It's something that growing up in the Bay area, hip hop was like a big part of my childhood. My brother who's five years older than me was, you know, making music when he was, you know, 13. And so I was eight and everything that he did, I, I idolized and I tried to do. Um, but I love to make music outside of work. That's fun. Yeah. Like, uh, that's something I wish I could find more time for too. Like I just play the guitar, just hacking on it, you know, just, you know, I'll, I'll watch, mm-hmm. you know, a tutorial on YouTube, figure out how to play a song, but, um, you know, time, time is tough to find to, uh, to do things like that. But, it really is. But I'm happy. I'm happy you're focusing on on my baby right now. So, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. building a company and be, being an entrepreneur—it's hard, but it's also incredibly uh, gratifying. And you know, if if you don't like what you're doing, obviously, you shouldn't be building a company doing it. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something in order for something to be really fulfilling to me, it has to be extremely challenging. And and this has been the greatest challenge of my life, and and it's fulfilling in a way that only something that requires as much effort could be so it's it's tough but but absolutely worth it well noah thanks so much for taking the time to share your background story and all the the great you know steps along the way and of course what you're up to with our evaluation and you know it's definitely you know as i mentioned it's an industry that i i knew a lot about and uh, i can't believe it's still living in those days so thank you for bringing it to a modern era Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.